Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I am Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, where I work on media theory and religion and leftism and politics and communism and all the things that you think are cool. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm Matt. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. Um, I study uh, media theory, cultural theory and uh christianity leftist politics that's it that's i maybe stuff that you don't think is cool i don't know <laughs> all the things you think are like <laughs> that's right there we go um yeah so this week we're diverging a bit from our usual topics so um that don't let that scare you off though it's gonna be very cool uh brett o'shea from rev left radio and the guillotine is on the show today so you'll want to make sure you hear that um, this episode is going to be kind of focusing on a pressing contemporary issue, net neutrality, um, which is a little bit, I don't know, maybe like vanilla for this podcast. We're not talking about anything that crazy, except the conversation is going to be very good and focused on a Marxist analysis of net neutrality. Um, so this episode doesn't have anything to do with Christianity necessarily, uh, but you're going to hear lots of uh, good stuff about uh, spirituality, religion, and the left. Uh, but before we get that far, uh, we got a, a new iTunes review to read. So we're going to do it. All right. So here's the new review. Uh, the uh, title is Good Content, Great Brand. Five to five stars. Yeah. Great brand. I like that Thanks. we're being identified as great brands. Uh, having great brand. Same. Being a great brand. It's good. I'm, I'm glad that we're good <laughs> and great in both of those areas. Okay, the... <laughs> good and great and branded. <laughs> the reviewer says this. Thank you for a very good podcast. You're welcome. My uh, coworker tipped me off. Uh, <laughs> sorry, they also ca- capitalized very good. Like, because uh, that's oh, part of yes. our brand. That is very That's part brand. of our brand. That's right. Yeah. Um, just want to make sure everyone knows that. My coworker tipped me off to your <laughs> stuff a couple months ago, and it's gradually become a staple in my rotation. My friend and I have lots of good convos about the show and are very intrigued by your connections to Grand Rapids as we currently as we are currently developing our leftist ideologies, quote, under the watchful eye of the Devos, as you say, here in this very oh, yeah, Republican nice. place. Yeah. Um, that's scary. Uh, good luck to you guys out there. Um, your podcast has been a great help in deconstructing some of my lingering individualistic beliefs. And I dug your episode on combating liberalism. Well, that's good. Me too. I too happen to have a vague personal connection to the soil and the sun, so we also have that in common. <laughs> uh, hence, hence the band name. They're everywhere. Yeah. They're in the soil. They're in the sun. Uh, you can't, can't get All away. over the place. Uh, hoping to make it out to a live show sometime. Please come to Grand Rapids. Also, I was wondering if you had some reading recommendations for a baby leftist. Thanks. Okay. There's so much to unpack here. Uh, yeah, uh, we are going to do a uh, Magnificast live episode, but at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids. <laughs> That's the condition. If someone can oh secure God. us that space, we will be can there we just, 100%. Can we just stand out front? <laughs> live from outside the Acton Institute, this is the Magnificast. Um, I don't know, burn this building down. See so, like, okay, we'll stand out front, and we'll just, like, interview people as they kind of go into the building. Hey, uh, hey, sir or madam, uh, what do you think about uh, communism? And then you, you could just like, uh, you, it could be like one of those prank shows, like as they're talking to us about it, um, someone just holds up like a nice hammer and sickle behind them, like a good Soviet flag and just gets a photo. We could like collect a photo album. Oof, that would be so good. Oh my gosh. Um, from here on out, that's where all the Patreon money is going so that we can make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's cool. Um, also, I don't know. Go check out The Soil in the Sun. They're a good band. I listen to it all the time still. So it's worth it. 
I think. It is worth <laughs> it. I agree. Um, um, book recommendations for baby leftists. I don't know. Um, the Communist Manifesto. The Communist Manifesto <laughs> is very is that- good. It's hard to it is very to good. say to read anything else but that. I mean, there there are good other recommendations. So what I love about the Communist Manifesto so much, I said this to somebody on Twitter the other day, that in the second part of it, uh, which is called Proletarians and Communists, uh, there's this really great part sort of towards the end, and Marx just goes through all of the quote bourgeois, um, I guess bourgeois problems with the with communism. And he just, like, dispatches them all. And I like it so much, and I think it is good for baby leftists because, like, all of those uh, bourgeois objections that Marx kind of uh, takes care of in the manifesto are still around, like, about private property and whatever else. So I think that's good. Baby leftists should read that. Yeah, uh, I guess if you live in the United States, you can't go wrong with some good, like, historical stuff. There's all kinds of really good histories of particularly the U.S., uh, whether it's U.S. imperialism in other countries or at home. Um, this is, uh, maybe like a, a classic or something, but like, if you've, ne- if you've never read like Howard, Howard Zinn's history of the United States, people's history, uh, it's worth it. Like, why not just jump in? Um, that's a good way to kind of start understanding what's at stake in leftist conversations. I, I tend to feel like history is better than theory. If you're just starting out, it helps you get a sense of where people have been, why things are actually materially problematic to real life human beings in the world. Um, and the theory is a good way of maybe getting a, a bigger picture, but it just helps to kind of see, um, you know, what's going on on the ground, why you should actually care, why you should investigate. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, Howard Zinn is very good. You can learn about the uh, St. Louis Commune of 1877. So that's pretty dope. That's pretty dope. I was just learning about that this week because I'm going to go to St. Louis quite soon to visit you. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Uh, we are actually doing a live show. But not one that you could probably go to unless you live in the middle of nowhere, Illinois. Which, if you do, you should come. But <laughs> um, maybe we could, I don't know, Grand Rapids is a place we could probably go. That's true. Uh, I know people at Cornison University. That's where I went to my undergraduate. Uh, that's that's where I did my undergraduate degree. It's not where I went to my undergraduate degree. It's where I did it's, it. Uh, so yep. uh, maybe we can find a space there. That would be very fun. Doing a leftist podcast at Cornerstone is funny for a lot of reasons <laughs> and a thing that I would be into. We could go do it in the uh, DeVos Communication Center at uh, Calvin as well. <laughs> That's right. Um, we could also do it outside of a, a rock that is dedicated to one of the DeVos's at Cornerstone, just outside in front of it. Um, that's a really good testament to how much evangelicals just really want to court that good, good bourgeois pyramid scheme money. Yeah, uh, I like the idea of going to Grand Rapids so much right now because of that one really good pizza place that I can't remember the name of. Oh, uh, Brick Red Pizza. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's what it's called. They have like vegan stuff. That's a good one. They do. There's a lot of good vegan stuff in Grand Rapids going on. Hmm. There used to be a very cool restaurant in Grand Rapids called Barter Town, and that was pretty awesome. There were good, uh, good lefty folks who made vegan food, and they had like paintings of communists uh, up along the wall. That was cool, but it ended, and uh, a bunch of dumb media outlets picked it up on the internet and uh, complained about it. But that was neat. So I don't know. There's a lot of good stuff going on in Grand Rapids. We have a lot of listeners in Grand Rapids, actually. Oh, really? So that's pretty cool. I know that because they tell me. Oh, nice. Grand Rapids is a cool town. I like it a lot. Yeah. Shout out to folks in Grand Rapids. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of good lefty Christians there. This is now a podcast about Grand Rapids and uh, Christian leftist politics. <laughs> um, it isn't. It's not. That isn't what it's about. It's about net neutrality. 
Uh, and here's um, here's a good segue just right into it. Um, so this week we're talking with Brett O'Shea, like Matt said earlier, uh, about net neutrality. Before we do that, just a quick reminder to definitely check out his shows. Uh, Brett is a really neat character in the podcast lefting, lefty scene. Um, he described himself as a pan-leftist, which is like a guy who likes all of the leftists, and that's pretty cool. Um, so he has a lot of different tendencies on in his shows and he does a lot of cool historical work and he catches a lot of really interesting guests that you might otherwise not have heard of, like, uh, professors and researchers and, um, activists and writers. So, uh, look at that. There's also an episode with us on it on Revolutionary Left Radio. So if you just have not got enough of this, uh, good, good, um, very good insight, uh, on the Magnificast, you can get more of it there. Um, but instead of us uh, droning on more in this introduction, I say we just uh, throw it over to Brett. Um, so yeah, this week on the Magnificast, um, we should probably talk about like Advent or Christmas or something because our, our podcast is like named after, uh, an Advent related thing, but we're not going to, we're talking with Brett, uh, from <laughs> Rev, Rev, Rev Left Radio instead. Um, Brett, what have you been up to these days? Um, not much, you know, I, I got two kids, I got a full-time job and then I do revolutionary left radio on the side. Um, so I'm just constantly just working or studying or reading or reaching out to people. So it's just kind of a, a blur. My days meld together these days. Uh, that sounds good. Uh, you guys keep really busy with that podcast. You're you're way more professional than us in a way that uh, I, I aspire to be um, more uh, more organized. So kudos. <laughs> yeah, for real. I haven't um, heard that. Guys- That's interesting. If you guys have never heard Rev Left Radio, uh, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Go off and listen to it right <laughs> right after this podcast is over. Like, don't stop this one, but listen to Rev Left Radio after this. So it's really good. Oh, my gosh. There's never been a bad episode ever in all of them. So um, keep up the good work. Yeah, thank you. Actually, thank you so much for that. I seriously, deeply appreciate that, those kind words. Um, we just did an episode on Marxism-Leninism. And I know you guys are, you guys, I think both of you identify as Marxists. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm not a Leninist, yeah, though. More or less, yeah. Me neither. I'm I'm a non-Leninist <laughs> Marxist, but I, mean, I think I think um, those like you have a, there's a lot of anarchist podcasts out there. Um, there's not a lot of like explicitly Marxist ones, and very rarely do you see Leninism get a get a fair a fair shot at a hearing. So I was I was yeah. kind of honored to be able to put that out. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, man, you guys have been hitting it hard with some some good sort of like historical backing to. Uh, I don't know, get at some of these tendencies. Like the uh, the episode you guys did a few ago on Che Guevara was so good. Mm, thank oh you. my gosh. Yeah, um Dr. Thoreau Redcrow, the guest for that episode, he's just he is he has a like a computational mind when it comes to details and facts and he gets really obsessed with these topics. So we've had him on the Kurdistan and then the the Che Guevara episode and I, I have to give all the credit to him on those because he's he's just amazing. <laughs> yeah. Phenomenal. Uh, well, that's fun. Um, do you, Brett, do you, uh, I don't know if you guys do the whole Christmas thing, but are your kids getting pumped about like at least having some time off from school or whatever? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, we do the whole Christmas thing, you know, it's the, the tree, the presents, um, the family. I, <laughs> I enjoy the, I enjoy the holiday. Um, so, so yeah, the kids are the, the little, the little guys too. So he doesn't really quite know he's going to be excited just to tear things apart, but the eight year old is extremely excited. So. <laughs> nice. 
What about, what about you, Matt? Uh, I know. Uh, I just I can imagine your son Lewis is pretty pumped about Christmas. He he's like a very pumped kid. In a yeah. Good way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how's that? He, how's uh, that going? He has sort of two, uh, two sort of states emotionally, and they are pumped and asleep. Um, <laughs> yeah, man, he's getting psyched for it. Um, he like loves Christmas lights. He loves the Christmas tree. Um, and loves getting presents and stuff. So yeah, man, he's getting crazy, crazy for Christmas. <laughs> it's very fun at our house right now. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, I feel like having kids makes Christmas way more exciting. Uh, Emily and I do not have children. Um, and it is like Christmas is always the weirdest kind of thing to go through because you're like, well, I mean, I guess there's kind of a magic to it, but it's mostly on TV. So <laughs> I don't know. What, pa- pass the eggnog. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for sure. Dean, what have you been doing though, man? Oh uh, man, I have been uh, grant writing like like crazy. Uh, that is not my favorite thing to do, but I'm doing it. And uh, man, if I get it, I'll feel so good. So that's my life right now, grant writing. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, so cool. Christmas is coming up, uh, but also what's coming up is a very important vote about net neutrality. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know that. But uh, we are going to dig into it a little bit. Brett has been talking a bunch about it lately on his social media and the RevLeft social media. And it's a thing that's really important for podcast folks in particular. So if you're listening to this, this is an issue that uh, may very well affect you if you are if you dig podcasts and you're into it. Um so maybe we could just start out, Brett, by asking you, since you've done a little bit of research on this, uh, what is net neutrality for folks who maybe, I don't know, see it in the headlines, don't really know what's going on, and why do you think it's important? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, starting out with definitions are good. It's, it's, a, it's a buzzword. I think a lot of people have some general idea of what it means. But basically, net neutrality is the idea that all data on the internet should be treated equally, that your internet provider should be a neutral gateway to everything on the internet and not a gatekeeper who restricts access to certain sites, you know, throttles down speeds to certain sites, prioritizes information that isn't conducive to their financial or political interests, you know, or impose fees from for faster or better services. So it's just really net neutrality is really just a way of saying, let's maintain the Internet as a free, open, egalitarian, democratic utility. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's how we should think about net neutrality. And the word neutral says it all. We shouldn't have some interests having disproportionate control over something that we all use and increasingly depend on. Um, the internet can absolutely act as a tool of communication and even liberation. We see from Ferguson to the Arab Spring to movements all over the globe how the internet is again and again like a reliable, consistent way that people can can communicate with one another, come together, keep people updated in real time about what's going on. And so any threat to to the internet as it is is a threat to to leftist movements, to leftist ideas, to liberatory movements, to communication. Um, and we always got to think down the road, I think. Um, right now, the, the day, let's, let's say, you know, the FCC destroys net neutrality. In day one, the internet's not going to shut down. They're going to slowly sneak it in. They're going to start 
creating the fine print. They have teams of lawyers that are going to start etching it in, you know, one little step at a time. And before you know it, it's going to be drastically changed. But much like a frog getting boiled, it's not going to happen overnight. It's it's going to slowly occur. And so we have to we have to think down the road with net neutrality. What's what's it mean when um, these corporations, this handful of corporations, Comcast, Verizon, AT and T, when when there's a protest or a movement happening that they find antithetical to their political and financial interests, does that mean that they can start decreasing access or straight up blocking access to sites that are covering it in real time or sites that are sympathetic to it? Like that's that's going to happen. That is that is the the long game, and so we should keep our eye on that as well. Yeah, it's um, well. First of all, thanks for uh, that. Uh, incredibly good and concise introduction to a really um, important topic. I think that was really uh, that was good. I think you hit on all the all the points. Thank you. What What's kind of wild to me is just like um, how I guess in the dark uh, folks are on this topic. Um, the internet is a completely ubiquitous thing at this point. Our lives are integrated pretty much fully into online space in a lot of different ways. Whether or not uh, you know, not just like social media, but other ways too. Um, so it's crazy that people just like, don't even think about considering it like a, like a public resource or something, you know, it's like, it's like getting water to your house uh, at this point, but we don't think of it in that way. So the idea of privatization doesn't seem as scary to us for whatever reason. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, I, I totally think that defending net neutrality is, is a necessary condition for more radical steps where we can make the internet, you know, a public utility, nationalized ISPs or, you know, have some sort of more radical protection of the internet as a human right, let's say. Um, so, so defending net neutrality is just the just creating the conditions for a more leftward radical push for the internet to become. You know, in my opinion, it should be a human right, precisely for the reasons you mentioned. It's becoming ubiquitous. It's becoming something that if you don't have, especially in this globalized economy, you're you're at a you're at a material disadvantage. And so that's how I think leftists should really think about think about these issues. Uh, it's funny the phrase you just used, Brett. Uh, like we have to protect the internet. Um, that's a funny phrase. Like it's something I've never really thought about it in that simple of a term. Like the internet is a thing that should be protected mm-hmm. uh, and made public. And it's weird to think about net neutrality as it's being legislated against uh, right now because the internet is already such a privatized space. Like most people use Google, which is a private company. Uh, most people use Facebook, Twitter, private companies. Um, what kind of policies do you see are being developed uh, that would maybe benefit certain private companies even more? Uh, what do you think that leftists could do to, um, I guess, reimagine what the Internet might mean for us? Yeah, I think I think talking about this FCC vote is important. So I'm going to spend a little time kind of fleshing that out and talking about the consequences of what's going to happen, because the main policy being developed to threaten net neutrality is simply the FCC vote to destroy it. Um, and that, that vote takes place on December 14th. I think today is the, the 6th of December. So we have about yep. a, a week and a day before this vote goes. There's been some attempts by people to to delay the vote, but it looks like that's not going to happen. So we're this is this is crunch time. Um, the FCC chairman is Ajit Pai. This is a Donald Trump administration appointee to lead the FCC. So, I mean, you can already imagine the incentive structure and the way that this person thinks if the Donald Trump administration um, put him at the head of the FCC. Um, and there's actually, this is little, this is not very well known, but there's actually a court case happening right now that speaks, that will speak volumes to this issue. It's called the FTC, Federal Trade Commission versus AT&T. 
And it's basically, I'm not going to get into all the details, but it's a court case about common carrier status. Um, and it's it's going to be decided in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And that could have... So the FCC vote, if they destroy net neutrality, the only oversight agency left to deal with, with it would be the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. This court case is saying that um, the AT&T and these Comcast, tele, you know, these, these big corporations could be free from even FTC regulation. So FCC votes to destroy it. FTC is the only regulatory agency left to deal with it. And this court case happening right now in the background is saying that even that regulatory agency might lose ability to, over, to oversee this, these corporations. So that's extremely scary. That's happening in the background. But the main consequences, um, if net neutrality goes away, you're talking about the imposition of fees for using the internet. So websites all over the web, uh, you know, websites all over the internet will be charged fees just to exist on the internet. Um, these corporations can can throttle the speed to certain websites based on who pays and how much they pay. There's going to be a prioritization of content that is conducive to their interests. I mean, once they have control of it, it's it's not it's not crazy to think that they're going to utilize that control to maximize their profits for their share, shareholders. That's that's how they think. They could block access to websites they don't want to to carry, which speaks directly to more left wing or more radical um, narratives. And then like there's a possibility that they'll they'll treat it like like cable bundling. Like they'll package websites together and sell it to us as as bundles. And I you know a lot of the millennial generation were getting away from from watching cable te- television. We have Netflix, we have Hulu, we have all these internet websites. But I go over to my mom's house and <laughs> I sit in front of that TV and I'm like, "My god, every 5 minutes is like a 3 minutes of commercials." Every, everything is dumbed down <laughs> and horrific. And these same people that, that make the you know cable network so boring and bland and lowest common denominator, these are the same people that want to control the internet. So I think, I think we should really really think about that and, and the consequences, consequences of it. Um, one thing that often gets brought up in this dispute and the thing that the corporate spokespeople say all the time is, you know, the, the net neutrality rules didn't even come in until 2015. And before 2015, the Internet wasn't some, you know, corporate hellhole. So don't worry about it. It was just as free and open back then as it will be once this once net neutrality gets destroyed. But I mean, that whole that whole argument is, is premised on a really cynical and manipulative lie because the the very reason that the government had to step in and, and try to oversee these corporations is precisely because they were trying to impose tolls on information flows and to prioritize the flow of information based on whether a website paid that toll. Um, so the government had to step in and enact net neutrality as a reaction and a response to these corporations trying to get their, you know, their their grubby hands into the mix and grab aspects of it, you know, control the internet as it was. So the net neutrality was a reaction to them trying to take it over. So this this notion that um, it's just going to go back to the way it was before 2015. Yeah, when there was no oversight and you <laughs> greedy bastards were trying to take it over. And that's exactly yeah, that's what they're right. going to do. <laughs> so just, just be aware of those arguments because I see them crop up a lot. Yeah, I really like the idea of talking about um, like the internet as this space of, uh, I don't know, kind of... Um, like you were you were talking you were comparing it earlier to how like dumb and boring cable television is mm-hmm. so talking about the internet as a space of like more creative access or activity i think is really interesting uh i mean there are a lot of bad things about the internet as it stands um a lot of weird like free speech stuff that we can get into later but uh i was just thinking about how podcasting in particular has been such a unique way that um media has really been democratized it feels like yeah. and there are all these kind of leftist podcasts for example like yours uh like ours that are cropping up in ways that obviously you couldn't 
you could never have something like this in a on a cable news uh, network or on like a cable radio, like a, a, a corporate radio station or something like that, right? There's a certain um, autonomy that's afforded by the internet. Uh, and I, I wonder what you think about how podcasts have kind of changed the dissemination of leftist ideas and organizing. You mentioned Ferguson earlier um, in terms of the internet, uh, but how do how do podcasts uh, like what you're up to, um, maybe what we're up to? How do you think that those are kind of shaping the political landscape? Yeah, well, one way I think about it is in the context of neoliberalism and the ravages that it causes, the, the decrease in the quality of life for most workers across the world. So workers are, are pressed to the wall more and more. They struggle more and more. They have less and less leisure time. You know, more and more of their time is dedicated to trying to secure basic material goods for their own life. And so in that context, it's extremely hard for people to sit down and trudge through Das Kapital or, you know, Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch or State and Revolution. People don't have time um, to to sit down and dedicate, you know, it's almost a privilege these days to be able to sit down and, and read a full book and dedicate all the time and energy you need to it. So I think what podcasts allow us to do is to you know, I call it a Promethean effort of, of taking theory and history from academia and the ivory tower and bringing it to working class people on um, this notion of bringing something down to the people and giving it to them in a way that they can, you know, freely access it. And I know this is true for your listeners. It's true for my listeners. It's true for me as a podcast fan. Most of my most of my podcast listening happens at work when I'm in the you know I'm in the drudgery of of wage labor. My body is doing labor that I would never ever ever volunteer or choose to do if I had real freedom to decide how to spend my life on this planet. And the one little thing I have is to be able to put in these headphones and let my mind go away, not go away, but go to a different area, something that I'm <laughs> focus on things, you know. And so I very much think podcast is is giving working class people, most of the time while they're at work, the theory and the history and the philosophy and the ideas that they otherwise might not have access to. And that helps radicalize people. That helps bring liberals over to the left. That helps inform people and make them better organizers in their communities. Um, so I think that's that's extremely important. And just the internet generally, it's created communities of like-minded people. We see the rise of of trans rights, um, you know, queer theory. Um, we see decolonization politics online. This is because people who've historically been excluded from having a voice are finally getting a voice, and that voice is the internet. And and you're creating communities, you're creating organizations. More and more people are millennials, especially, are moving to the left, and they're becoming informed about what that means. And so it's a really, really positive, interesting time to be on the left in this country and to be in this world and to be putting out content like this. So I think those are some of the the ways that, that podcasts have changed the dissemination of, of these ideas. Yeah, that's a really cool um, insight. There's this really, okay, so there's like this sort of um, back and forth uh, conversation that, that goes on in the history of media that I think what you're saying kind of resonates with. So on the one hand, um, I don't want to get like too in depth into like media theory or anything like that. Cause that's unnecessary. But like in the 1930s, there's this guy that's writing whose name's Bertolt Brecht. And um, Brecht is a guy that thinks a lot about theater and a lot about radio. And that's kind of um, I think why he's interesting for this conversation. But uh, in the thirties, Brecht was writing about um, about radio as an apparatus of communication. And the idea behind it is that like uh, radio is awesome, but it's only one way. And that kind of sucks. Um, so I guess like what's, um, what's kind of nice. And like what he suggests is like, wouldn't it be nice if radio worked in two different, in different directions where like, you know, the, the, uh, bar to participate was way lower for other people. 
I think that podcasting is definitely one of those like spaces where it's a little bit more democratic than the radio is. Um, and we can like let people speak in ways that they uh, haven't been able to before. That being said, there's still like, you know, lots of real problems, um, ideological and material with the internet, but still, um, I think what you're saying is definitely on point. Yeah. It was super interesting to read that piece and hear him trying to grasp for concepts that would later we'd come to realize as podcasting or the internet, but he's talking about tubes and, and things going yeah. both ways. Um, it's really interesting to see a mind that operating, thinking about ideas, but not having the conceptual stuff in his hands yet to really articulate them. But he, I mean, he did a great job, but just to hear him talking about what it could be. And then we look at the internet today and, and, you know, the rise of digital internet, et cetera. And he was getting at those ideas, but it was really interesting how he was trying to fumbled around with the concepts there. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny when people realize an idea before it's um, materially possible. I like mm, that a lot. Exactly, <laughs> That's one of my favorite exactly. things about media history and media theory. Definitely. Um, so one thing, kind of speaking of that, just having this kind of two-way uh, um, horizon, I guess, for podcasting that radio didn't have. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of really neat things in um, radio over its history, like uh, like here in Canada, where they have a pretty strong public media presence, the CBC. Uh, the CBC is not perfect, but there are some shows that historically have gone out of their way to um, maybe interview guests that would otherwise not be welcome in a corporate media setting, uh, to put it sort of lightly. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty fascinating because um, it takes a lot of effort for uh, a massive state-funded body like the CBC to um, take creative risks and uh, oftentimes there's all kinds of uh, problems with like taxpayers complaining about uh, what their dollars are going to or whatever. Um, but one thing that's so fascinating about podcasting is uh, it does sort of um, allow for like a dissemination of voices along like a more niche kind of plane. I mean, this is a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. Like it doesn't really get more niche than that. I feel like <laughs> uh, I, I don't understand how we have like more than five listeners, but we do. Um, and uh, I, I think as we've been doing this podcast for so long, one thing that has just continually come up is all the surprises that we've had, like with guests and with listeners. Like we keep kind of getting emails from folks who are like, uh, I never knew that you could be a leftist and a Christian. Uh, I never knew that you could be like a communist and go to church or, you know, hey, I, I grew up going to church and then I left the faith. And then like now I'm thinking about coming back because I, you know, I've, I'm now a member of like a communist party and that's really neat. Um, so uh, it's just kind of a strange shift, I guess, in how media works and connects with folks. And I, I, listening to Revolutionary Left Radio, I've often kind of wondered, I mean, you have such a wide range of guests and such a wide range of, of topics and themes. And I've wondered if you've been sort of surprised in a similar way as you've connected with different folks around the country, um, as you've connected with different guests. What are kind of some of the big things that you found in the medium being a podcaster uh, on the left as you've been doing it over the last uh, however many months? I mean, it's been it's been so amazingly rewarding. Um, you, you know, you, you'll, you'll get messages from people like, you know, speaking a little bit of what you said, you know, somebody who lives in the middle of virtually nowhere, doesn't have a lot of connections in their town or community, but they can put in their 
you know, their earphones and, and listen to us. And then I've had, you know, people message me like, I've always had like one, one message that sticks out is I've always had these ideas, but I, I never had a way to talk about them. I never knew that there was an entire philosophy or sets of philosophies that spoke directly to my feelings. And I think that is, that is one of the surprises that I've had is there are so many people out there that for whatever reason, for an infinite amount of variables, weren't able or haven't been able to wrestle with these ideas or have access to them in the way that, you know, I have been privileged enough to have access to them. Um, and so being able to help people politically develop and help give words to people's values and feelings that are intuitive but unarticulated has been one of the, the most rewarding parts. People talking, um, people have reached out like after Charlottesville, I got messages from people wishing my kids are okay. Like it, it makes me want to tear up just talking about it right now. But the notion that somebody in Brazil cares about my kids, I mean, it moved me to tears when I read that message. Um, and that's the sort of community and sort of connection that I, I found so surprising and, and so rewarding. And that's to say nothing of, of everything I've learned I've learned from my guests, you know, I mean, every single episode that I do, it's like, I'm talking to somebody that knows way more about this topic than I do. Um, my job is just not to crash the boat. It's just to keep the thing on the water <laughs> and let, let them inform my guests. But so every time that I finish an episode, I walk away from that episode, having learned something and taking that to my next episode and incorporating it in, into my worldview. And so it's, 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 um, it's informative and educational for me as well. And that's why I would, I would do this for free. I would pay money to do it. Um, the podcast gives people a chance to have long conversations and especially in the era of social media and Twitter and, you know, 140 characters and Facebook posts to be able to sit down and have a long form conversation with another human being, is, is rare and rarer these days. So it's, it's really, it's really rewarding to do that. And it's really surprising, um, how much I've learned and how many connections I've made with people. <laughs> Just, uh, don't, don't tell the FCC that you'd be willing to pay to do this. <laughs> yeah. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Edit that out. <laughs> yeah. We'll edit that out. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. Uh, I guess that is like a really cool part where, um, a podcast can be niche and still have kind of a, a following or like people, people will start recognizing themselves in the conversation after hearing it. Um, that's such a powerful kind of story um, where, you know, people find some type of identity in what you're talking about. Um, and uh, sort of a, an exit from the hegemonic sort of uh, roles that m more mainstream media put people in. Um, they can find themselves in other sort of narratives and other types of ways of thinking. It's exactly. Really exactly. Yeah. It's very much, you know, this is, it's very much about narratives. And when you're talking about net neutrality and the destruction of it, to some extent, it's about the ability for powerful interests to control that narrative and control the medium through which those narratives, you know, are, are spewed. Um, so what the podcast and the democratization of the internet has allowed us to do is get our narratives out there, tell all our stories. Um, you mentioned the Che Guevara episode earlier. You know, th that's something that there's a lot of misinformation. There's an entire cottage industry dedicated to to tearing him apart and perpetuating propaganda that even members of the left buy into. So to be able to sit down and correct that narrative and to say, no, 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 that's not that's not the case. You know, here's the real truth about who this person was. Um, that's been that's really rewarding. And that's an essential part of maintaining net neutrality is is maintaining our narratives and our ability to tell our own story, because if, if, if we have to give up that right, that freedom, that liberty, um, it's going to go into the hands of the corporations. And then it's just the corporate state and their 
and their messaging and their narratives and they frame events and they get to frame Charlottesville. And that's, that's a big problem. And that's something that, that I think is so important with regards to net neutrality and maintaining it. Yeah, that's right. I don't trust AT&T or Verizon to tell me about Che Guevara. I don't think they, Hell no. I don't, I don't think they know what's up. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty funny, actually, thinking through how uh, the history of television has been sort of slowly more and more privatized. Um, There's a lot to be said about it, but in the United States in particular, news media wasn't always as uh, certifiably, like, out of control (laughs) as it is today. Uh, And a lot of that history has to do with um, the government just uh taking away all government oversight of news media and television and requirements to actually tell the truth in journalism uh so what you get is stories that sell rather than stories that actually make sense um or like actually are meaningful or uh frame things in a in an interesting way the internet is such a weird medium because you you still in many places most places uh in north america have to pay money to a company to get a connection in the first place um, but it, at the very least, like, you don't necessarily have to, uh, um, pay to play, uh, as it were, um, in the same way that you do on like a, me- a weird medium like television. Right. <clears throat> Absolutely. And, and I think it's also important to point out that when we were talking about corporate control, um, it, you know, corporations by virtue of what they are, they see, they see issues like this, not in terms of, of history or the dissemination of knowledge or communication or humanism, but like strictly through the lens of profit, you know, how can we turn yeah. this thing into a revenue generator? And and when they're when they're looking to get their hands on the internet, that's how they view things. It's it's like a um, a, a vampiric short sightedness, a one way of seeing things. And they're not interested in what this means for humanity's future. They're not interested in listening in on this conversation and, and hearing how we think and feel about these ideas. They're interested in one thing and one thing only, and that's increasing profits to give to their shareholders. And so that's the mentality that they bring to everything. And that's the mentality that, that they want to bring to the internet. And, and once, once that mentality is the dominating mentality over anything, that product, that thing is going to suffer and going to become worse, always. Yeah, it seems like there's such an opportunity for um, moral, like moral revulsion at this whole thing, um, if people would stop and think about it for a minute. Like, if you stop and think about how, like, uh, I don't know, any major media, like, news company um, makes money, it's by, like, um, sensationalizing news and making people, like, want to listen to it or watch it. And then also, you know, by uh, generating ad revenue and like those two things are related, like the more sort of like shocking news you have, like the more people will pay for like ad spots on your uh, on your show. And then if I mean, taking a step further, too, I mean, with the the prevalence of sort of like the prevalence of bad news or the prevalence of certain types of news, um, like uh, corporations use like the like they use the suffering of other people to make money off of them through ad revenue. It's like a, a really gross thing. But exactly. it just like happens. That's like how the entire industry works. Um, like pressing, pressing suffering bodies in front of viewers um, is the way, uh, I don't know, Fox News or MSNBC makes their money. Yeah, absolutely. They they profit off of human suffering when there's a disaster, um, you know, or some horrible thing that happens somewhere around the world. Notice that, that they'll cover 
the event. They'll cover the bloodshed. They'll play sad music as they're transitioned to commercials, but they'll sell you products and they'll keep you there. And the moment, the moment that that disaster stops being interesting, when the hurricane is left and now it's just human beings trying to rebuild and that, that no longer is sensational enough for them to make money, they leave it. They, they move on. And, and that is, that is harmful for so many reasons because it, it, it just, it just becomes disaster porn. It's just us watching disaster after disaster, horrible thing after horrible thing. And then using that like visceral fear and repulsion and, and fascination to sell us products, the, you know, like we're, we're going to create a void in your soul. We're going to make you feel scared and vulnerable and uneasy. And then we're going to have about five minutes of, we're going to sell you products ranging from silly clothing to cars, to medicine, to make you feel better. And then we're going to come back and do it all over again. And that's, that should be morally repulsive to anybody that's even kind of sensitive to these sorts of things. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yes correct proper opinion thank you thank you Um, thank you (laughs) uh, so let's talk a little bit about um, like we we started getting into podcasting on the left in general but let's talk a little bit more about that Uh, I mean there's a lot of podcasts out there these days there's a lot of leftist podcasts there are probably even more kind of liberal podcasts Um, I remember uh, so I don't know why I do this but I watch late night TV every night uh, despite the fact that I just cannot stand it I don't know I'm a masochist at heart I guess that's my problem (laughs) but uh, I watch it every night and uh, there was this one episode after the uh, election uh, where on the late show with Colbert they had the hosts of Pod Save America on which if you've ever heard of that podcast it's like some Former Obama uh, staffers just, I don't know, shooting the breeze about, like, how dumb the Republicans are uh, and failing to understand how dumb the Democrats are. Right. And that's, like, one of the most uh, popular political podcasts out there right now. Um, And it's so fascinating to kind of see the ways in which uh, podcasting can be a tool for the left, but it's also a way for us to kind of keep convincing ourselves that uh, we're right uh, if we're, whether we're on the left or, or liberals. Um, what do you think that leftist podcasts in particular can kind of do to, I guess, um, use this medium to their advantage and like keep connecting with folks who are seeking something more, seeking alternatives? Um, I mean, what what do you have to do to kind of uh, to dethrone the um, the Pod Save America crew from uh, the the Late Show uh, couch? Yeah, well, uh, I think a big part of this is is creativity, is is personality. D- don't make podcasts that are a chore to listen to um you know i love democracy now they play a vital role uh i support them i you know good for them but it's very very boring <laughs> and if, <laughs> if you tune in it's just it's it's droning on and on and that's fine there's, there's important information there but if you really want to to get information to people you have to do it in an interesting and creative way and you can't just speak to their minds you have to speak to their hearts you have to you have to inspire them you have to frame things about how it directly affects them and try to do something try to do something different um i always say that that in the leftist world leftist podcast world this is not a competition to buy into the premise that somebody listens to the magnificast that means one less person is listening to revolutionary left radio that's absurd and that's actually the corporate free market mindset of everybody's out for themselves it's a zero-sum game get what you can get anybody else's success automatically means a failure on your end that's horrific um so the way we can use the medium is being creative speaking to people's hearts and 
amplifying one another. I want my listeners to listen to the Magnificast. I want my listeners to listen to Feminist Killjoy's PhD podcast. You know, I want them to listen to It's Going Down. We all have a different perspective, a slightly different take on things. And the more of a community we can build based on amplifying and lifting up one another and not based on competition and the zero sum mentality. I think I think is the best way. And one of the reasons we recently made our spinoff podcast, The Guillotine, was because Revolutionary Left Radio was very theory-based, history-based, philosophy. And that's good. That has a role to play. I try to make it interesting and creative. But at the same time, I thought that we also needed something that spoke more directly to people. It hit them in their gut. That got them amped up and worked up and you know brought tears to their eyes and inspired and incited and agitated them. And so I think that that's really important, which which you guys do. That's really great that I don't see from a lot of other left wing podcasters is your sense of humor, your 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 empathy, your humanness, the way you the way you can talk about just mundane activities of everyday life in a way that is appealing and entertaining and interesting. I think that's a big reason why I tune into your show is because there's something so human and I laugh out loud. I've never listened to an episode of yours where I didn't laugh out loud. And that's that's the point. That's what, that's what we should be doing, you know? I think that's what attracts people and keeps people. And it doesn't make this whole thing boring. I don't want to just depress you and send you about your way. I also want to make you walk away feeling like I learned something and I got a little fire in my belly. And I think that's what leftists can do. Yeah, thank you. We are very funny. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> see, I told you. See, I, feel, see? I feel like, uh, Brett, you... I feel like you really missed your calling as like a like a preacher, a pastor. <laughs> you, you got a real like you you bring that that real pastory, uh, you know, like get you stirred up kind of vibe. That's interesting. Um, I like I feel that. Like I'm in like leftist church. <laughs> I tweeted at uh, I tweeted at Brett the other day that he's the uh, he's the podcast Fidel. <laughs> yeah, I like that quite a bit. <laughs> there you go. I very that's much. <clears throat> we can be the podcast Fry Beto. That's absolutely. That's fine. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I, abs- I absolutely um just really quick when when I do yeah. when I do the guillotine because I've been to many protests and rallies and you know I, I never miss like if people want me to I get up and I I speak you know extemporaneously and try to rile people up and so I write my pieces on the guillotine very much as if I'm writing a speech to like a rally um and I I try to put that energy to put that energy into it and so yeah that's kind of that's kind of my perspective on that yeah man well it comes through for sure thank you um. Yeah, so you were you were saying kind of at the beginning of that that last bit there too that you know you have to that there has to be like a, a level of creativity in podcasting and I think that is essential and I'm glad that you think ours is creative. Usually, I don't know. I think ours is kind of boring sometimes. Sorry, no. sorry, Dean. I mean, no. I like our podcast. I like <laughs> no, it personally. I, I agree. You know, um, there's this uh, there's this this quote though that always kind of sticks with me. Okay, so I tweeted this earlier, um, and th- there's this. Um, okay, so you guys are listening that are not behind the scenes here. To kind of prepare for this podcast in general, I sent Dean and Brett like a bunch of like Marxist media theory stuff. And um, one thing I sent them is kind of like this really dated essay, but uh, it's kind of funny and true in some ways and not true in other ways uh, from this guy named Hans Enzenberger, which is like the most German name I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> it doesn't get any more German than, than having the last name Enzensberger. Anyways, there's a, this essay is called Constituents of a Theory of the Media, and uh, it is dated. Some of the things he says are probably no longer very true, but it's this uh, cool essay that's dealing with um, the new left in the 60s uh, kind of fear of the media and the like constant critique of media and manipulation. Um, in the essay, what's really cool is that uh, Enzenberger's like, yeah, media is manipulative, and like 
so what? Um, and then there's this great line. Uh, this is a, the longest lead up to, to a quote ever. Uh, but Enzenberger says uh, that you can't be afraid of dealing with media because um, fear of handling shit is a luxury a sewer man cannot necessarily afford. And I think that is a call to all all leftists out there uh, that maybe you, you should also make a podcast or something uh do do something creative uh get involved with this dissemination of leftist ideas because uh we live in a world uh with a uh completely horrifying uh neoliberal capitalist hegemony and we can't be afraid of handling the shit yeah and i, I would, I would <laughs> even right. i would add on to that um you know if not everybody can get in front of a mic and speak and, and do this it's, you know this this format is not for everybody but there is something you can do like if you're an artist, if you're a musician, we need all hands on deck. So I think helping the left build up a broad culture, you know, the media is one aspect of it. And I totally agree that the critiques in that um, that article was were really on point and really interesting. I liked, I enjoyed that article quite a bit. But you know, it's a broad movement. So we all have talents, we all have skills. Sometimes our our forced participation in wage labor doesn't give us the time to develop those skills or even discover what they may be. But insofar as we're able to do that, you know, put your talents to to work for the cause in any any way you can. Be as creative as you can. Talk to people in your circles. Find out what you're good at and leverage that towards towards the struggle. And I think um, in that sense, you know, not everybody has to have a podcast, but everybody can do something. Everybody has a role to play. And you know, I think I think that's important. Yeah, that actually reminds me. Uh, I've mentioned this a couple times on the podcast, but it's because it just sticks with me. But a long time ago, we <laughs> talked to Jody Dean, who's a very cool communist uh, woman. Yes. You should check out if you don't know. And uh, she said something about the People's Congress of Resistance, where she was saying, um, like, a lot of people are turned off by the left because it's kind of a weird and accessible aesthetic sometimes. Like, it has a, I don't know, it has a look, it has a feel. And that is a cool thing, but not necessarily an accessible thing. Mm. And she was saying, uh, like, whatever, be cool. It's fine to be cool, but also, like, find a way to connect with people who are not cool. And uh, <laughs> I, I just, that is probably one of my favorite things, because I was just thinking about, like, I'm from a place that is very not cool. <laughs> like, I grew up in rural Michigan, and uh, there was nothing cool there at all, even a little bit. And I'm always thinking about ways to, like, explain socialism to my mom, uh, who is, like, a smart lady, but she's not, like, uh, I don't know, she's not listening to, like, all, all your favorite punk bands, you know? Right. And uh, I think uh, talking about creativity and just getting out there and finding your gift and using that uh, to build a culture is really important because uh, it, it could be something as simple as just, like, I don't know, uh, like, knitting with a bunch of people. Right. There was, like, a, there was a protest that I had heard of a long time ago called a knit-in. And it was just a bunch of women who got together to like knit a bunch and just talk about um, some issue. I can't remember what it is now, but an issue that was affecting them at the time. Yeah. Uh, And I thought that was such a neat way of like building solidarity, just hanging out and like doing a sort of banal creative project together and uh, using that as an excuse to shoot the breeze and have a good time. Um, I feel like that's something that the left is uh, sorely in need of. It's just like finding ways to chill out together and like have fun. Yes. And in fact, um, here here in Omaha, you know, we have a couple organizations that we've we've created and, and are, you know, doing stuff like Feed the People and Solidarity Networks. And this podcast or my podcast is an extension of that organizing. But we, we make it a point every few months 
to just go out and do something together. Whether like we're, we're planning a, a Christmas ice rink and then after party where we're all going to go ice skating together. And then we go afterwards and we just hang out and, you know, drink at somebody's house. Or we had a, car- a comrade karaoke night where we all got into one small little building and we... We all, you know, sang karaoke together. And that's super important because it, it, it draws people in and it makes organizing fun. Organizing doesn't just have to be, you know, like boring meetings and doing a lot of work with what little time you have. It can also be fun. And, and integrating that into your organizing efforts and integrating that concept just into your life broadly, I think is important. There's that old Emma Goldman quote that's like, if, if I can't dance, it's not, it's not my revolution. And I really do believe, yeah, that's right. yeah, I do believe that we should, we should make it fun. We should make it interesting. We should make it so people want to come out and build that community garden, you know, um, organize that meeting, go have fun with your comrades afterwards. So I, I, I'm totally on board with that. I think it's extremely important and it's something that not enough people talk about and promote on the left. Um, so, uh, I don't know how we got down this road. I'm not sad that we went down it. <laughs> no, it's a However, good, it's a good road. I do you want to? It's a really good road. We should have started on this road, in fact, but we're going to bring it back to this uh, net neutrality conversation. Uh, I have no good segue. Uh, If you've been listening to the Magnificast for a while, you know that I'm a master of bad segues, and (laughs) here I am practicing that skill one more time. So what can we do to stop net neutrality legislation? Um, what uh, what steps can we take? I mean, people talk about calling your representatives. That's fine, uh, I guess. I don't know. Make Annoy them. That's like... Uh, what liberal citizens are supposed to do, I guess, annoy their representatives. But um, is there a leftist response to this? Like, what are we supposed to do to build a, uh, maybe like a popular movement that understands the internet? Yeah, well, I think I mentioned this earlier, um, at least in part, but I also think it's really important, like, this fight is going to keep happening. Remember two years ago, we were doing the same shit. We were arguing about the same topics. We were trying to defend the internet. We, we ended up winning in 2015, but here it comes again. And this is the nature of capitalism. This is the nature of monopoly capitalism. This is the nature of these corporations and their interests. They will keep doing it every single time. And they're not going to stop as long as we have capitalism. They're going to try to get their hands on the internet because it's so valuable and it's such a cash cow for them. So the fact that this fight has to continually come up is exhausting and also is an indictment of the of the broad system that we live in. Um, and I, I always say like the mere fact that net neutrality is even up for debate is a, is an indictment of capitalism. Like in any such in any system where it was a true democracy where people were truly equal, this notion of a few corporations owning a utility like the internet wouldn't even be conceivable. So only in a plutocracy, only in an oligarchy, in the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, is this even something we have to fight relentlessly all the time, stave off the vampires constantly. Um, but as far as what people can do, there isn't, in my knowledge at least, an uh, organized particularly specifically leftist response to this but there's like this broad coalition and it's a weird coalition because it's everybody from like asshole 4chaners to to like liberals <laughs> to just people that spend way too much time on the internet to leftists almost everybody except corporations and a few flunkies in the general population are against this thing so i i don't i i think it's kind of helpful to think of it as just a broad coalition um we we want as many people and as 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 much numbers as we can get in this fight and so it's it makes for strange bedfellows but this is one fight where i think we we can go ahead and allow that to happen but there is one website that i think has sort of centralized and made simple all the information. So everything we're talking about here is is on there in, in simplified, summarized form. 
It links to protests in your area. So any direct action or any rallies or protests that are taking place in your area, you can go on this website and find it. Um, and it also gives you outlets to sign petitions or call your Congress people, which, you know, is still still a tool in the toolbox. You know, it, it can't be discarded entirely. It's super limited. It's not going to get anything done long term. But as a small way, as, as, as one tool in a big toolbox to put pressure on representatives, it's not bad. But the, the name of the website is battleforthenet.com. Battleforthenet.com. And I, I just I push people in that direction because they've done the work of organizing and getting all these links set up for people to just easily stream through, and 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 do what they do what they find best for for their situation. So that, so that's one thing I would argue. And the second thing is going to be kind of weird, but John Oliver is actually taking a weird lead on this issue and has for some time now. And there's two there's net neutrality part one and net neutrality part two on YouTube. So for, you can go watch it for free, um, where he just lays it all out and it's really funny. It's really humorous. Um, and it's really informative. And he also gives you ways to, at the end of every segment, he gives you ways to to go ahead and try to address this issue too. So those are kind of my recommendations. It's late in the game. You know, it's hard to to build anything new up. So what we're just going to have to rely on what's already there. And I think those are a few resources that anybody can go ahead and, and take advantage of to try to stop this thing. Yeah, uh, Battle for the Net's a great website, a uh, great resource for this. Um Tomorrow, uh, December 7th, unfortunately, this podcast won't be out in time to tell everyone about it, but uh, December 7th is uh, kind of a national day of protest for this issue. Um, I was looking at the map, and there's like, you know, four or five of them even in my area tomorrow, so maybe if I have a minute, I can go stop by or something. Um, But there will be future protests if you don't go to one tomorrow, I'm sure. Um, Yeah, like Brett said, this is not an issue that's going to go away anytime soon, so it'll be ongoing forever. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it's sad. It is <laughs> until, until we after socialism. the revolution. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and one more thing I wanted to mention is really, really gross. But I, I see it, and I think this is a good Marxist way of understanding some of this stuff. Is the way that ideology is marshaled to defend this corporate takeover. I, I sometimes, being the masochist as 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 I am at times, I went and listened to Rush Limbaugh. I just turned him on on my way home from work. Oof. And, and oh yeah, millions and millions of listeners. And the way he was framing this issue was net neutrality equals big government and destroying net neutrality <laughs> equals liberty and freedom. Ah. <laughs> it's so simplified. But these toxic terms, free market, big government, freedom of choice, liberty... These are not terms that are unpoliticized. These are not just philosophical concepts. They're very much loaded dog whistles, and they speak viscerally to people, and they turn off their minds. So if you're a Rush Limbaugh listener, like, I I hate big government, and I love freedom, so uh, I'm anti-net neutrality. That works on a lot of people, and and part of our job is trying our hardest to reestablish the narrative and, in, and introduce intellectual honesty into this debate. And And, you know, liberals will only go so far with it. Um, but leftists can can start pointing at the structural root causes. Why are we fighting this battle every two years? Well, it's capitalism. It's it's the corporate takeover of every sector of our lives in this late capitalist neoliberal period. And you know, until we strike at the root cause, these things are going to continue to happen. These wars, these horrible presidents, these disgusting politicians, these ridiculous policies. Over eighty percent, about eighty percent of Americans support net neutrality. You know, only 29% of Americans support the GOP tax bill. You know, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump had disapproval rating, disapproval ratings in the 60s. 
but they were our two candidates. The GOP tax bill is probably going to go through, and net neutrality is on the chopping block. So we don't we don't have we don't have democracy. This is nothing even resembling democracy. This is as anti-democratic as it gets. This is the rule of the bourgeoisie, and this is what it looks like. It's ugly. Very ugly. <laughs> it's, it's not great. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> I'm still just thinking about the Rush Limbaugh impression. Or sorry, the Rush Limbaugh <laughs> listener impression you did, and I, yeah. it was astounding. I love it so yeah. much. Maybe that's unfair, but I do have a penchant for the uh, the conservative Southern accent, so I, I it's deploy good. it anytime I can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't want. I keep taking the fire out of this uh, with dumb comments. <laughs> oh my god. Um, I think what what is interesting though that it is such like a it, it is so weird about how many like I guess the the segments of political populations that kind of are are making up this movement like you said everyone from like weird four chaners to liberals to people on the left that is such a weird thing I guess it's also a good time to kind of start pointing out these contradictions in, in capitalism as well I mean if if uh, anyone goes out to those protests tomorrow or in the future and you see like you know some some folks there. Um, you could always uh, proselytize them about socialism. I think at that point, I think it'd be a good time to do so. Um, this is one of those, I mean, just like Brett was pointing out, one of those stark contradictions in capitalism um, where it's cl- clearly undemocratic and those words uh, freedom uh, don't mean what uh, we think they mean. Exactly. It's very uh, mom and dad friendly conversation, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think it's a good way to get into something with your mom and dad. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, uh, maybe we can close on just uh, the most important question. So as you may know, uh, we at the Magnificast have been engaged in a long campaign uh, to dislodge Joel Osteen <laughs> from the top of the religion and spirituality um, category uh, on iTunes. So uh, what do you think in the, in the context of this? How can we build uh, leftist coalitions uh, with with Christians to remove uh, remove the uh preacher of the bourgeoisie from his spot uh <laughs> under net neutrality while we still got it yeah right yeah you know the joel austin is a weird figure and and really an, an illustrative one because he really is a morbid manifestation of capitalism kind of deforming christianity this this weird if you take capitalism and you pour in christianity and you mix it up and you're going to get a joel austin so it's it's very it's very strange and it speaks to the ways that you know, the, the mindset and the values and the incentive systems inherent in capitalism can really kind of defang and, and make weird movements or, you know, longtime religions that are, that are really beneficial and, and have a real capability of, of helping people. And so that's kind of a sad fact. But I think whatever community you're in, whether you're in a church or a secular community, talking about these issues, meeting people where they are. So you, you don't walk into to, you know, your church and start talking about dialectical materialism right away. But but you, you can talk about, you know, how they, somebody mentions, you know, I have to go to work, but daycare is so expensive these days. Like, I, I don't know if it's even worth me getting a job or if I just should stay home with my kid because I can't even afford daycare. That's an in. That's something that you can you can you can use to start talking about. Well, why is it that that you're struggling? It's not your fault. It's not because you're lazy and you don't work hard enough. So those are kind of my my thoughts on that. I don't really have a really great idea about how to get Christians and leftists together to <laughs> to <laughs> overthrow Joel Osteen. But I I do want to say one thing, and this I never get a chance to talk about this stuff, and uh, this is a perfect venue for me to do this. But like talking about the in, the importance of spirituality in somebody's life. You know, I'm I'm for all intents and purposes an agnostic, but I do I do have a a practice of daily meditation. 
And I know Christians who engage in prayer or or go to church every Sunday or have family gatherings that are that have religious undertones to them. That's a kind of a way to, to heal yourself and ground yourself and connect yourself with other people. Um, and there's actually a really interesting sort of overlap between some s- mystical segments of Christianity in the past and like some segments of Zen Buddhism, like Thomas Merton comes to mind as somebody who's tried to yeah, for sure. make a synthesis of those two ideas. I find that extremely powerful. And I find that in my own spiritual practice, my own meditation practice, I very much re-energize myself. I center myself. I heal myself. And I become a, a better person all around, a better podcaster, a better organizer, a better father. And I think too often spirituality and the importance of religious communities gets downplayed on the left with these silly slogans of no God, no masters, or religion is the opiate of the masses. These turn huge segments of the world off. And there's no reason, by the way, the opiate is of the masses quote is way more nuanced and, and is actually an empathetic reading by Marx. And it's often simplified to mean like this dismissive you know, notion of, of religion, but it's not really a fair way to, to think about that quote. But the overall point is that the left should open up these spaces and we should open up to these spaces and bring people from these spaces in. And I think that's a good way to start addressing some of those questions. Yeah, I think you're right. That's such a a good and helpful point that I don't know. Dean and I are just kind of in the thick of it sometimes. Maybe we miss that. Um, I, uh, I completely agree. And it's kind of funny too, because um, religion or like some type of like spiritual aspect in your life some types of spiritual practices are really good because it's at least like one moment in your day when you're not completely oriented towards the production of capital or like you know towards those um, the relationships between you and your work or something it's like one moment where you can kind of like leave that and that's pretty nice mm, um, super interesting like, yeah yeah um, so here's a story I hope my previous bosses are not listening to this. I mean, they're not, I don't have to worry about that. It's okay. Uh, but, uh, I used to go to morning prayer, like almost every single day. Um, I mean like, and that might make me seem like a really spiritual person, but I mostly would go so I could be late to work. Um, so that's awesome too. Uh, uh, that was a great excuse. Um, no one cared if I was late to work as long as I was going to church in the morning. So think about that. Think about that. You just go, go to church, be late. I don't know. Um, Anyways, get paid for that full hour. Yeah, that, that, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, so uh, it's, it's like funny. Practices are cool like that. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because I know my bosses are not listening either. But um, every day, <laughs> every day at work, I go in really early. I, I get some of my main morning stuff done, and then I sneak off on the clock to a little office. It's actually it's a lactation room, <laughs> but it's like always empty because like very few people are are going in and pumping, you know, when they do, I leave, but it's very rare. So it's basically just an empty room that has a lock on it and there's no cameras in there, obviously. So I, I sneak, I sneak in there every, every day for about 10 to 20 to sometimes even 30 minutes and just do a, a meditation. I just sit there and meditate on the clock. So not only am I getting a little respite from, you know, the, the machinations of wage labor, but I'm actually draining <laughs> the corporate overlords of money <laughs> while I'm meditating. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so I think uh, this is an argument for just getting prayer and meditation spaces back at work. We need to get that back in the workplace. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I don't, I don't have an analogous story except that in high school, um, I didn't identify as a Catholic when I was in high school, even though I was raised Catholic, 
But uh, every Ash Wednesday, I would nevertheless uh, skip part of school just to go get Ashes, so I didn't have to go. So that's about the closest. <laughs> yeah, <thing ever>. yeah, <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. Um, I encourage everyone to do that. It's a good way to get out of uh, school. School's the advertising agency that makes uh, makes you want to accept society as it is. That's right. You said that Ivan Illich, Catholic priest. Nice, so, nice. The books. Sick. That's awesome. <laughs> Um, well, Brett, thanks a lot for coming on this podcast. Uh, we should have you back to just talk about the left um, more generally sometime. I think that would be really good. Uh, there's so many other things that we could talk to you about. Um, but it was great to just get your thoughts on neutrality. It is a pressing issue. Uh, there is an upcoming vote, and it will be even closer by the time this episode is posted. So do what you got to do. Organize your community. Tell your um, tell your grandparents about it, and maybe they'll get real mad and write some letters to their uh, their their representatives or something. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just great that Brett, you've built such a really amazing following of people who are passionate and getting more passionate about these kinds of issues and other issues, and you are willing to dialogue across so many tendencies and. Uh, camps and and communities and uh, it's just really important the kind of stuff that you're doing so thanks for taking the time to do that a little bit with us yeah, yeah and, thanks and, so much man and thank you guys you know one of the most i was talking earlier about the surprises and the nice things about doing the podcast one of the most rewarding things about this so far has been has been getting to know you two having you on my show me coming on your show i consider you guys friends absolutely consider you guys comrades i have your back anytime you need anything i'm here to help you and i'd love to come on anytime to talk about anything you guys are awesome so thanks for having me on i seriously deeply appreciate it <laughs> nice yeah you're too kind brett you're like the most uh you're the most christian podcaster i know and i do this, uh, this podcast with Matt every week, so. i love that i love that <laughs> Alright, thanks for listening to Magnificast. Um, if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter, uh, subscribe to us on SoundCloud, like us on Facebook. Man, social media is uh, definitely a, ter- a territorializing force of capitalism, but if you could do all of those things for us, it would definitely help us. Um, <laughs> and if you're feeling uh, especially generous, you can also give us a little bit of money on Patreon if you want. But you know, you don't have to, you can listen to it either way. We're not in control of your life. All right, uh, special special note here really quick. Uh, our intro music, if it's new, if you if you like it, like I do, it's so good. It's by uh, Amari Armstrong. It's very cool. Um, so enjoy that good that good good beat at the very beginning. Uh, and uh, to carry us out is the Illogical Spoon. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.